because uh, I'm really simultaneously terrified and excited to be back up here today, and um, I'm looking forward to bringing the Word of God to you. So we're going to continue in our study of the book of Ephesians. Uh, If you could turn now to chapter 1, verse 7, but uh, just keep your finger in that place because we're going to talk about something for a little while first. Uh, The principal theme of our last look at Ephesians was redemption, which was provoked by verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. We learned that this word redemption described the way that we were ransomed from our slavery to sin by Jesus who brought us back through his death on the cross. Thanks to that act, we have the undeserved benefit of an enormous forgiveness which Paul sizes by comparison to God's grace. And that's a grace that we must honestly understand to be gigantic because if we think about our own sin and then multiply it billions of times over to allow for all of humanity, well, it must be pretty large. We remain then with a debt of gratitude that we discharge in part by continuing Christ's mission of preaching the gospel to all the world. Now, this is the glorious thing about grace. When God saves you by grace, it doesn't put you into debt with him in the sense that you must pay it back with interest. He bought you in order to set you free. And although I've used phrases like debt of gratitude to explain our position, I don't want anybody to feel uncomfortable with those words, to think that they are heavy and burdensome because that isn't what God intended. Although we are called to serve him, it is on another basis, that of a new relationship, a relationship of love. The Lord Jesus said himself, if you love me, well, keep my commandments. He didn't say, because I died for you, you have to keep my commandments, or if you don't keep my commandments, I'm going to get you with a bolt of lightning. He said, if you love me, do you love him? Do you? Well, then he wants your service. If you don't love him, then don't serve. But be sure that you are in the wrong place and you need to do something about it. We talk a great deal about ministry today. What's your ministry, brother? How do you serve in your church? And we encounter these questions at tea time. We see them in registration forms for conferences. And when sometimes when we want to study, you know, I've just registered to study at Laidlaw College and they wanted to know how I serve in the church. I don't know why, but they did. Now, I'm not saying that it's wrong to ask those questions or to answer them, but as we answer, we need to be sure in our hearts about why we are serving. It shouldn't be like God has lent us 10 bucks and we feel we ought to pay it back. And it definitely shouldn't be with any sense that it would buy us a seat in heaven. Friends, you and I have very little to give to him physically. We are to respond to him in love, and that is a different proposition altogether. We love him because he first loved us. While I was preparing the sermon, I found this story, and I'm sure that some of you will have heard it before, because I certainly have. And it goes like this. It beautifully illustrates this truth. 
back in the days of slavery, there was a beautiful girl who was put on the slave block to be sold. So on the one hand, there was a very cruel slave owner, a brutal man who began to bid her. And every time he put up his hand to increase the bid, a look of fear would come on her face. But there was another plantation owner who was there, and he was a kind man. He was known for being good to his slaves, and he began to bid for the girl too. And he actually outbid the other fellow and purchased her. He walked up to the desk, and he put down the price, and he started to walk away. And of course the girl followed him. But he turned to her and said, You misunderstand, I didn't buy you because I needed a slave. I bought you to set you free. She simply stood there stunned for just a moment and then she fell to her knees. Why? She said, I will serve you forever. That's a wonderful illustration of the basis from which the Lord Jesus wants us to serve him. He loved you. He paid a price for you. He gave his blood and died on the cross so that we could have forgiveness of sins. And that forgiveness is all yours if you're willing to come to him and accept him as your saviour. So, what will you do with this knowledge? If you're a believer, will you serve him? If you aren't a believer, will you follow him? We should return now to the passage at hand. You could open your Bibles. I hope your finger hasn't gotten too sweaty in there. Um, Just before I, I carry on, I'd like to ask who thinks that they are a wise person here? Put your hands up. That's very disappointing. We'll see from this passage what God thinks. I'll I'll read from verse 7 to keep up the flow of thought. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Now since we have already dealt with verse 7, we're going to go straight into verse 8, which helps us to understand that God didn't leave us like a newborn spiritual baby, unclothed and unfed and unable to deal with a sinful world. He knows that we would be unable to understand and action his intentions in our old selves, so not only does he redeem us, but he gives us wisdom and prudence as essential tools for the work of sanctification that we are about to begin. And let's remember that word sanctification describes the work that we share with God throughout the rest of our lives as he makes us more and more like Jesus. As an illustration of this equipping, Let's just say that I was marooned on a desert island with maybe a whole case of baked beans to keep me company. Just me and those beans. Why are you laughing, Calphone? (laughs) (laughs) Now, there's one problem. I don't have a can opener. And cans being as tough as they are, I uh, I could probably starve before I could get one open if I just had even the simplest can opener. Do you know, in gifting us with wisdom and prudence, God has given us the tools necessary for life, and not just a can opener, 
but a knife and a fork and a spoon and a plate and a mug, everything that we need. Let's, let's look at verse 7 and 8 again. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence. Now I hadn't realized until I came to the study that there are actually two ways of interpreting this, this passage. On the face of it, it looks like God was wise and prudent when he gave us redemption and forgiveness because of his grace. However, there's another way to read this, and it's the one actually that most commentators believe to be the right one. And that is that we receive an abounding amount of wisdom and prudence when we are redeemed and forgiven as a consequence of his grace. And I hope that if I change the word in to as in verse 8, it sort of will make it a bit clearer. Wake up, Sarah. No, it's gone. It is there. It is. I'm sorry. I highlighted in red, but from here it looks like black. It's my poor eyesight. (laughs) Now, I I, I want to do something that's maybe a little bit um, unusual now. The, The wording of this passage is just so complicated. It's really hard to understand. So, I... I'd like to provoke some discussion if you think it's necessary. Do you see the difference that I'm trying to highlight? Sarah, if you could pop up the next slide where the two are next to each other. Okay, can can you see how when you read the the first one, the one on the left, it it kind of looks like God was wise when he he gave us these things. Okay, used that wisdom when he gave them. But on the other hand, you can read it that he gave those things to us. Does that make sense? Does everybody see that? It's very important that we understand it because, frankly, the rest of the sermon hinges on it. it (laughs) So I'm in trouble if you don't agree. Yep, does does it make sense? Thank you. Okay, so I can move on. If you're unclear afterwards, please come and talk to me. Okay. Now there are a lot of very, very convoluted arguments about why the one on the right is the right argument, but the short version is this. Okay. Theologically, it's hard to find anywhere else in the Bible where it says that God did anything with all of his wisdom. Okay? He uses it all the time. So there's no precedent to establish a doctrine like this. Most importantly, it's, it's very inappropriate to suggest that God used all of his wisdom only in this occasion because if you follow that train of thought through, it, it kind of suggests that, well, maybe sometimes else he didn't use all his wisdom and therefore he was a little bit careless. Well, we can't say that about God, can we? Because it's completely insistent, inconsistent with his character and it's very disrespectful. So we must strongly discount that possibility. And contextually it makes sense that we are given the gifts of wisdom and prudence so that we can understand the mystery of his will because that connection makes the most sense of the very next verse. Verse 9. Okay? Having made known to us the mystery of his will. If we don't have the wisdom and prudence then we can't understand the mystery. 
And also, if we look a little bit further in the same passage, in verse 17 of chapter 1, Paul specifically prays that we would be given these things. He says, he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And then again in Colossians 1.9, I want to make sure you understand this. For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Okay, just now I spoke about precedent. Are there other examples of scripture to support this idea? Yes. The two verses we've just heard involve wisdom being given to the believer, so it seems safe to say that the correct understanding of verse 8 is that God gives us all wisdom and prudence through his grace so that we might understand and execute his will. Now note that Paul has said all wisdom and grace. And the word that he uses means all very thoroughly. God has thoroughly equipped us. He hasn't just given us some wisdom and grace, but he has done the job properly. There's no situation that we will encounter that we won't have the right tools to deal with. And that knowledge ought to give us the confidence to serve him in places that we might normally think of as beyond us or maybe even too scary to think about. I think this brings us to the question, why has God given us wisdom and prudence? And I hope this will, be, this will emerge um, as we go on to look at some specific words in the passage. Firstly, let's pick up on the word grace. Now, aside from its theological meaning, grace is a word we most often use to describe movement. Think of dancers and not hip-hop, okay, but ballet. It's elegant, beautiful, and flowing movement. I wish I could show you some, but I don't think I could do anything that would qualify. It does occur to me, though, that the theological definition of grace, which is God's goodness towards those who deserve only punishment, isn't far removed from this physical meaning, because God's goodness is a beautiful thing, and the way that God extends his grace towards us is beautiful too. I hope you will agree that it is a good word to describe God's loving movement of salvation towards us. To help us understand the value of grace, let's um, use a little lotto fantasy. Okay? Not so long ago, we had a lotto prize that exceeded $30 million. That would be very nice. Now, let's imagine that you had a normal evening, bangers and mash of tea, you might um, bicker with the wife a little bit, but you do make up, yell at the kids for messing up their room, tea and bed. Okay? In the morning, you wake up, you check your lotto ticket, and you discover that you've won $30 million. $30 million! As they say, how would it feel? Oh, well, how would it feel? I think it would be pretty special. Yeah? Just, just hang on to that thought, okay? Let's change the scenario a little bit. You've been a proper swine all of your life. You've done everything that's evil, you've stolen, you've cheated and you've bashed people. You have a normal evening. 15 beers for dinner, followed by a joint. You punch the missus in the guts and kick the kids just because you like to do that. Okay? 
You have another joint and then it's off to the club. Forget about bead. In the morning you stagger out, you check your lotter ticket and you discover that you've won $30 million. $30 million? Well, how would it feel? It's a bit of a pointless question, I suspect. But who do you think deserves the money more? Friends, this is the mystery of God's grace towards us because from his perspective, in our sin, distasteful as the comparison might be, we are just like the second character in our story. And yet, undeserving as we are, we have won the big prize. Fellowship with God and eternal salvation. It follows in the same way that $30 million will completely transform our earthly life, so the gift of God through grace should also change us profoundly. And what I really mean is must, not should. It's impossible that we were so perfect before our conversion that no change is needed. You know, the Old Testament law has proved that in spades. That is why we must repent. We must change our minds and move in a different direction to the one that we were going in. To accept salvation and then to persevere in old ways of behaviour is at least disrespectful of the cost to God, of the prize that he has freely given to us. No, we must seek change actively. Note that in the second part of verse 9 it says, according to the good pleasure of his will. Although this verse is specifically speaking about the gifts of wisdom and prudence, it is also true that God hasn't given us salvation grudgingly, but he is pleased to do so, just as he is pleased to give us all wisdom and prudence. Do you see the value that he places on us, even though we don't deserve it? And that is why we need to respond to him in love. Let's briefly look now at those, wis- those words wisdom and prudence. Now the first word, wisdom, comes from the Greek word Sophia. And interestingly, it's a word whose meaning seems to have wandered all over the place because it first of all describes somebody who had an unusual gift in, in, a, in an ability like a particularly gifted carpenter. And then it became quite the opposite because it described somebody who had special theoretical or intellectual knowledge. And then it finally ended up to mean the kind of wisdom that unites theoretical knowledge with practice. Okay? I know it in my head and I've got the t-shirt. It's a very practical and broad-based kind of wisdom. It gets very tricky here now because the next word that is used, phronesis, and that's translated prudence, or perhaps your Bible might say insight, well, it's very often interchangeably used with Sophia. It doesn't make much sense, though, that, that Paul would be saying, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound to us in all wisdom and wisdom. I mean, there's got to be some intended difference. And in the end, I found this comparison that seems to make sense of the whole thing. And uh, you've got it on your, your sermon notes. It says, While Sophia, wisdom, is the insight into the true nature of things, phronesis, or prudence, is the ability to discern modes of action with a view to their results. So what Paul is saying is that God has given us the ability to look wisely at a situation, analyse and understand it, 
and then decide the right thing to do. That would seem to be a very useful skill for anyone, but particularly for a Christian as we seek to act in God-honoring ways in all situations. Moreover, this comprehensive wisdom is extended to us freely with salvation. It isn't something that we need to grow by wearing a hair coat and sleeping outside in the Arctic until we're 80. It's a great and freely given blessing that comes along with salvation. Those who receive God's gracious redemption and forgiveness of sin gain insight into the fact that God no longer holds them guilty for their sins because they have been paid for, buying them freedom. Prudently they know that such freedom shouldn't be used selfishly, but to serve the living God. Earlier I said we, we, we would be looking at answering the question, why has God given us wisdom and prudence? And I hope that the little summary just made has answered some of that question. Let's move on to verse 9 now. Reading again from verse 7, I keep going back because remember this, this stuff that we're looking now is part of a 200 and something word sentence. So you can't just kind of start in the middle. You have to follow the thought through. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence. Verse 9, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself. Um, have any of you ever wanted to be let on, let in on a really big secret? You know, you, you can see some people talking in the corner and you just think, man, I'd like to know that big secret. Yeah? Well, you have. Because you've been let in on the mystery of God's will. This is the main reason that we have gotten that wisdom and prudence, so that we can understand a genuine mystery, which is God's plan for the ages. But you don't think it's a, a mystery? Well, please can I challenge you to think over some conversations you might have had with non-believers. How they just they don't get it. Okay? And that's part of the definition of a mystery in the biblical sense. So what is this word mystery? There are lots of them in the Bible and unfortunately modern associations of the world might make us think about men with pointy hats and robes with stars and moons and stuff on them. But the fact is there isn't any magic involved at all. Mystery simply means this. The hidden eternal plan of God that is being revealed to God's people in accordance with his plan. In scripture, it denotes things that mortal man cannot understand without a revelation of God in a way and at a time known only by him and through the Holy Spirit. So we can't know unless God tells us and he will decide how and when and he will do it through his Holy Spirit. In secular terms, a mystery such as the one we might read in a novel implies knowledge withheld. It's kept back. But its scriptural significance is always truth revealed, made open. And so we see words that are associated with a subject like made known, manifested, revealed, preached, understand, and this word dispensation that we've seen already. When we see those words in scripture, then we will know that they are probably talking about a mystery. 
Now we know what a mystery is in general terms. What exactly is the mystery referred to here? What do we know about that we didn't know before? The construction of verse 10 makes it very difficult to understand. So let's try to puzzle through it. I'll read it again. That in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. <coughs> Excuse me. This, the first matter is this word dispensation. It comes from the Greek word, oikonomia. And I think you can guess that it is the root of the modern word economy. And it means administration in the sense of looking after a household or a state or dispensation or stewardship. And your Bible may very well use one of these other terms. The next is the matter of the fullness of times. Now, think about how an hourglass works. All right, We want to time something, we turn it over and the sand pours from one compartment into the other until it's full. And when it's full, we know that that's the proper time to do something. Okay, But that, that information that it's time to act, it hasn't arrived from a vacuum because the space has been filled, some work has been done. And that's what's happening here on earth. And we're all part of it. Our service as Christians within his divine plan is filling God's hourglass up until the fullness of time when he will act. But only he knows when that will be though. The word that Paul uses for time isn't descriptive of general time such as, hey mate, what's the time? But it infers a critical time, an opportune moment. So far then we can say that our understanding is that in the administration or the execution of his sovereign plan as almighty omnipotent God the Lord will act decisively at the right time to what? He will act together to, he will act to gather all things together in Christ. And we've looked at a lot of Greek today so our eyes are probably glazing over a bit but I want to show you the word that means gather mostly because it looks so impressive. And I I don't know if I even trust myself to try and pronounce it. No, I'm not going to. Okay, what's interesting is the kef bit, anakephalomie. Okay? Because it essentially means head. And it suggests that the gathering together isn't a rabble or a mob, but it's united under one head. And that head, of course, will be Christ. It gives a feeling of returning matters back to their starting point perhaps from a situation of chaos. And that, friends, is right where we live right now and have lived since the time of the fall, the time of chaos. What will be gathered together? Well, that isn't so hard because the language here is actually quite clear. All things. And again, that word all, very comprehensively, does mean everything. All of the things which are in heaven and are on earth So we know that it isn't just material stuff that Paul is talking about, but everything, all of it. So now we've looked up at these words and phrases, we might sum up verse 10 like this. At the proper time, in his administrative work, God will gather together and align every single thing under the headship of Christ so that his original plan 
will be perfectly complete. A gentleman called W.E. Vine puts it like this. He says, What a vast vision is here disclosed to view. The universe is to be reconstituted in Christ. All things in the heavens and on the earth are to be reunited under his headship. All the dispensations or seasons which have proceeded have been preparatory to this great consummation. All the dealings of God which have characterized the various ages will receive their culmination in that age. Hence, it will be the fullness of the seasons. Christ will be the uniting bond of all things. In him, through him and for him were all things created. For it was the good pleasure of the Father that in him should all the fullness dwell and through him to reconcile all things unto himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things upon the earth or things in the heavens. So what we've seen in this passage today is for Christians a great message of hope. It's a giant arrow pointing towards the future. The difficulties that we all encounter every day are not going to be our lot forever. At the appropriate time, God will act to restore the perfection he intended in the beginning. I suspect because we're all so wrapped up in being human, we can't really understand what that might be like. But we can be sure that it will be good. It will be very good because our Lord and God is very good. In our men's study on a Thursday night, we've been going through a book by Jerry Bridges and he puts, he makes a very appropriate and meaningful statement about this. He says, Just as it is impossible in the very nature of God for him to be anything but perfectly holy, so it is impossible for him to be anything but perfectly good. I reckon I'll take anything that's perfectly good. Now, this probably sounds like the end of the sermon, and it nearly is, but first I want to ask you something. Okay? You've noticed the little red suitcase. It's been up here during the service. Alright? This suitcase is very important to me because it contains just about every hand tool that I need on a daily basis for routine mechanical work. I use it pretty much every single day. And over a period of some years, I've refined its contents so that just the right stuff is inside and I know that I can fix almost anything with what's in this little box. Okay? Now, God has given us believers a little red suitcase as well. He's done that through his grace. And inside is every kind of tool that we need for daily service in him. We are freed from the bondage of sin. There is no burden to hinder our movement. He has given us every kind of wisdom to interpret situations and then prudence to know how to deal with them. He has declared the mission of his will. We know what we must do. And he has included a book of instructions, the Bible. Will you use your little red suitcase every day? to serve God in love, or is it going to lie around gathering dust somewhere? I think that would be very sad. Let's pray. Father, today I want to thank you for freedom.
thank you for buying us off the slave block and then walking away and allowing us to serve you in love. Thank you, Lord, that you didn't just set us free, but you set us free and you equipped us. Father, I pray that as we recognize that in our lives, we would be encouraged to take the tools you've given us and to work for your glory because that's really all that matters. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.